you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And so we're looking here at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, And the phrase that we're looking at now is who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this last little chunk of chapters of verses 3 through 5 before we move on to verses 6 through 9. And this is a, well, it's modifying for you. It's describing you. So remember throughout, if, if we look at this diagram, our, our actual sentence is the God and Father is blessed or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is blessed. That's the actual sentence. And then all the rest of this stuff from verses, through, verses 3 through 5 is just talking about the God and Father, who He is. He is the one who has begotten us according to His abundant mercy, according to His abundant mercy, unto a lively hope, by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. And this inheritance is being reserved in heaven for you. And so all of that is talking about what God has done for you. And now Peter is going to use this last little phrase to talk about you. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior by belief alone, by grace through faith, then this is you. And what he, how he describes you is still in terms of what God is doing. The ones being kept by the power of God, by means of faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So even as you talk about you, it's still about God in you. What He has done for you. And that's what Peter's doing now. Can you? Peter takes a long time to say anything, doesn't he? I mean, he, 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 all of this stems from blessed be our God and Father. The one who, blah, 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 and just, just spouting doctrine about God the Father. He's, he's driving to his point, but he's not even nearly to his point yet because he's so busy talking about all this great other stuff. And it's not a bad thing. It's just that's who Peter is. And so let's talk about this a little bit. The ones who are. That's what what he's describing here. The ones who are. God is the one who has begotten us again into a lively hope. God is the one who raised up Jesus from the dead and secured our inheritance. We are the ones. And the first thing is being kept by the power of God. Being kept by the power of God. Can anyone read that uh, long word for me? Audrey? Very good. For Ruminus. Ferumenus. And how about the lexical form? Um, Sophia? Fureo. Fureo. Very good. Did we talk about this last time a little bit? Maybe not. Um, this, this word means to watch or to guard or to protect or to keep in. It's a participle, so it's a verbal. Um, it's a verbal adjective, in fact. It, it modifies the substantive, relates itself to the verb in the sentence. Um, and it's a present passive, accusative, masculine, plural, um, participle. Now, as we think about this, 
The reason why I translated it the way I did in, in, uh, on the diagram, the ones being kept. So it's a substantive participle mod, uh, describing you or us, and it's the ones who are being kept. Now, the first thing we see is that it's present tense, which means it's a linear or ongoing idea. This is something that is happening, right? It's been happening. It is happening. It's something that's happening right now. You and I, if we're believers, are being kept. But notice the voice that it's in. Passive voice. Mason, what does that tell us? You gave it to me one time already, so I know you know it. <laughs> you can read it off the screen too. It's right underneath passive uh, voice, passive. Passive voice indicates that the subject is being acted upon or receiving the action, right? So the idea here the verb, or the verbal in this case, the participle, is indicating to us that this isn't something that you're doing to something else. This isn't something you're doing to yourself. This is something that you, who you're the subject, right? You, the ones who are being kept, it's happening to you. You're receiving this action. You are receiving the keeping. You are being kept. You aren't keeping. doesn't say the ones who are keeping their salvation says the ones who are being kept in their salvation. Who are being kept unto their salvation. And that's a blessing of us understanding some of these nuances of, of the verbs is that we can see these things. So those who are begotten again, remember that's... Is that a question? Oh, yes. Um, it's verse 5. The King James says, who are kept, um, but definitely has the present passive idea to it as we would understand it, who are being kept uh, continual and it's happening to us. Uh, so we who are begotten again into a lively hope, remember that's from uh, verse 3, that, we're, uh, that we are begotten again into a lively hope of an incorruptible inheritance, are kept, are being kept by the power of God. Our salvation is guarded by God, maintained by God, not ourselves. And this uh, concept, it precludes the idea that we do anything to maintain our salvation. And this is a very important concept, that we don't have to maintain our salvation any more than we have to earn our salvation. The doctrine of eternal security, let's talk about it together. This is going to be a little bit of a side note here, a side light, that we'll talk about the doctrine of eternal security. Security, because it's a good place for it. The doctrine of secu eternal security teaches that salvation is an irreversible one-time transaction. That once you have received it, you can't unreceive it. That it is a one-time, irreversible, unchangeable transaction. Uh, Charles Ryrie put it this way, eternal security is the work of God that guarantees that the gift of salvation once received is forever and cannot be lost. You'll oftentimes hear it, once saved, always saved. Now, why would a person, when you think of eternal security, um, to me, salvation without this is, is a miserable thing. Salvation without eternal security is just fear. Constant fear. You're, you're, hanging, you're, you're hanging under the constant threat of losing out on that which you have. 
or uh, in, in a fit of, of, you know, whatever, grief or fear or whatever, giving up. If you think of, I had a, a, a couple once tell me that they, they wanted me to, they came to me with concerns about the idea of eternal security. And the idea of once saved, always saved. And, and I was asking them questions. And they said, well, we don't believe you can lose your salvation, but we do believe you can give up your salvation. That since you received it, you can give it back. And that's a very Armenian idea. Um, we talk about the, the, the spectrum of belief on salvation. You've got the Calvinists on one side, which believe that man has no free will. Uh, Hyper-Calvinists, we would say. No free will and that God is, is 100% sovereign. And so God basically elects and then enables and enables faith and, and, and such. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is typically called hyper-Armenianism, which says that mankind is the, is the, the one who chooses salvation, so it is uh, up to him and his will. And since he willed it into being salvation, he can will it away because God has given man ultimate free will. And so you see both of those spectrums. And, and, and if you're on the hyper-Armenian side, then you might believe you could not necessarily lose it, but give it away. And if you're on the Calvinist side, hyper-Calvinist, then you would believe in the idea of perseverance of the saints, which says that if you don't persevere until the end, then you weren't saved. And so you're constantly, under, you're constantly wondering if you're one of the elect, if you're a hyper-Calvinist, and if, are you going to persevere? And if you don't persevere, then you, you weren't there. And it's... Anyway, so why would someone not believe in eternal security? Well, there's three reasons why someone would not believe in eternal security that I, I kind of derived. There, probably, there might be more nuances of these, but three general reasons. The first general reason is a misunderstanding of what it is that secured our salvation. And sometimes this is, this is it's a situation like this. You got saved. You legitimately got saved. You put your full faith and trust in God, but you don't, and uh, you've all experienced this, the moment you got saved, you, you didn't understand everything about your salvation, did you? I don't think anyone in here understood everything that salvation meant the moment they received it. They maybe understood bits and pieces and, and enough to receive and believe, uh, whether it was that they were a sinner and they needed a Savior, whether it was that they, didn't want, that they were on their way to hell and they, and they wanted to go to heaven. Uh, there are many different motivations by which a person says, yes, I'm going to put my full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then you spend the rest of your life learning what it means to be saved and learning what happened to you at that moment. So many things happened to you the moment you got saved. Justification and redemption and adoption and all of these things. We've already talked about many of them. They're all words that speak to what happened the moment of salvation. Being born again. There's so much in that phrase, that idea of being born again and what that means. And as we think about everything that happened, sometimes people will, will get this idea, well, you know, the Bible says believe and they're still trying to understand what believe means which there, there are entire books written by theologians about what believe means, right? Some people say repent. Some people don't say repent. Some people say believe. Some people say, well, um, you have to repent and believe. Some people say you have to repent and be baptized and believe. Some, and, and there's all of these, these debates about this, not necessarily about all of the things that it takes, but all of, of the sum total of what it means to truly believe. And so you'll get some people that will say, well, did I really mean it? 
Did I really believe? Did I have effective belief? And they'll start to, to toss over. Uh, some people, if you lead them through a sinner's prayer, which many people are led through a sinner's prayer, will trust the prayer kind of. And they got legitimately saved, but something connects them to the prayer to where in moments of weakness they'll say, did I say it right? Or, and, and, and they're, 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 they're somehow afraid that they didn't get saved right. They didn't say the right thing. And a lot of this can be ignorance. It's not to say that they, they did or didn't get saved. They may have or they may not have. But I've known believers who have struggled with these things. And legitimate believers. But they've struggled because of some misunderstanding of the process. They're immature and they haven't grown or they have not been discipled up to the point where they recognize that belief alone is what is necessary and that belief is not simply knowing, right, who Jesus is and what he has done, but it is taking all of your eggs and putting it in Jesus' basket. It is placing yourself on Christ's side. as And we'll talk about it uh, in a little bit, but as Hebrews 6, 1 says, repentance towards God, or repentance towards dead works and faith towards God. Recognizing there's nothing I can do to get myself toward heaven and trusting Christ alone to get me there. And if a person hasn't really understood all of those dynamics, even though they fully believe what Christ says, they haven't been discipled enough to know all of the, the dynamics of it. So that is one reason why a person might fear losing or, or we might say fear not, not being saved when they thought that they were. Talk to a lot of people up here that have, had that, that have, have given me that idea. Um, they'll say, um, I got saved the first time and then I, they'll say something to the effect of I got saved again when... And it's not that I doubt the sincerity of their conversion, it's just I doubt their understanding of what it truly meant to trust Christ. The second reason, a life of sin. And we talked about this one in 1 John, do you remember? In 1 John 3, John said, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And as we look in the in First John, does anyone remember the theme of First John? The primary theme of First John? Huh? Not truth, although it is it is an important aspect of First John. So that's a good um, a good answer, but not the primary theme. Sarah, fellowship. That's right. Fellowship, right, was the primary. Theme. Um, as we think of truth, was that may have been second or third John where it bubbled up to the primary. Um, I'd have to um, go back and look, but that may have been one the the one where it actually bubbled up to the primary, and it was hearkening much to what First John said, as First John tried to prove. And uh, John said, "These things write I unto you that your joy may be full, that you may have fullness of joy, that you can know that your." a child of the Father, and that's because you're walking in fellowship with Him. And the whole point of 1 John was that when you are walking out of fellowship with God, you don't... You, you, the sin that's in your life can bring about fears, can bring about concerns. And one of those concerns can be, am I really saved? Because you're living in sin. 
that your heart will begin to condemn you. And yes, God is greater than your heart, but if your heart doesn't condemn you, that's when you have confidence toward God. You have confidence to serve God. You have confidence to be used of God because you know that you are God's child. If you're wrestling with the basics, then you're not going to be able to be very usable by God. And one of the reasons why you wrestle with the basics is because you're so steeped in sin that you say, there's no way a child of God could be living the way I live. But in fact, we learn from 1 Corinthians and even Galatians that a Christian can be pretty carnal. And as we understand it, there's absolutely nothing an unbeliever does that a Christian can't do. He'll be miserable. He'll be under conviction. He'll be chastened. But he can do it. Now, the third reason would be this. False doctrine or false teachers, right? So, so those who don't believe in internal security, either it's because they're, they're ignorant, they need to be discipled, they um, have a life of sin that is causing them to feel as though they must have lost their salvation at some point because a Christian doesn't live this way, or false doctrine. Those who teach false doctrine, those who profess salvation but aren't born again, and they cause confusion when they, quote, fall away, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, those who profess salvation but don't live like a Christian, and so they offer co- confusion regarding the nature of being born again. These are all different types. Um, so you have the person teaching false doctrine, saying that you can lose your salvation. You have people that profess salvation, and so you live thinking that they're saved, and then they completely reject it, and you're like, wow, that person was as good a Christian on the outside as anybody could be, and yet, look, now he's you know, atheist, you know, whatever. And you say, hmm, I wonder if, or that would uh, lead us to the idea that maybe you can lose your salvation. Um, But in fact, they were never really born again if they've completely rejected everything. It's simply, simply put, they were never born again to begin with. Those who profess salvation but don't live like a Christian and so they, they bring confusion. So this could be a kind of a muddy the water with that sin idea that when a person is living in, uh, in abject sin but professes salvation, there's confusion about what it means to be born again because you say, well, he says he's born again and he says he's, he's not and yet the guy that says he's born again is living a worse life than the guy that's not. And it muddies the waters. So, um, as, I, as I present these, do you have any thoughts? Are there others, other things that come to mind, other reasons why a person wouldn't believe in eternal security or any questions about what has been said or, or comments or concerns? Or So, why can we believe in what we call the doctrine of eternal security. Why do we believe it? Well, first I'm going to give you some, some textual proofs of eternal security. What the Bible says that, we're not going to go through all the context tonight, but verses that give us confidence that we are secure in Christ. And again, this is if you have truly accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. This is, this is um, not to say that as long as you say you're a Christian, you're a Christian. As long as you... you uh, can think back to an experience, you must be a Christian. To an emotional moment in your life, you must be a Christian. I'm not saying that. That's between you and God, and really only you and God know whether you're a believer. Now, the, there's the fruit of salvation that assures others 
that you are a believer to the point where I, I can be very confident in, the, in the, the salvation of many that I know. But I tell people this at the jail all the time. Uh, uh, just, you know, Callie just got saved this past Wednesday and sat down with her. And, and one of the, after, after she accepted Christ, I looked at her and I said, you know, Callie, I've given you all of this and I've talked about the reality of needing to be sincere. And I, I, I make it kind of, I hit it pretty hard with them. I read to them, no man, uh, that, that the, the man who, who gets saved is one who takes up his cross and follows Christ, and um, no man who, who uh, doesn't leave father and mother and sister and brother is worthy of me. And I give them all of that to let them know this is a serious deal. But I told her, I said, I can't know whether or not this was genuine. Only you and God know. But when you do, when you know that you've made a genuine profession of faith, when you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know that you are a sinner, you know that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins and rose again the third day according to the Gospel, and you fully believe it and you know that there's nothing you can do to get yourself to heaven and you are putting all of your faith in Jesus Christ alone to get yourself to heaven. When you're there... These are the proofs that you have eternal security. And the first one we go to is uh, John 10, verses 27 to 29. This is Jesus Christ, and He's been talking about Himself as the Good Shepherd. And various dynamics to the Good Shepherd. He calls Himself the door, and the sheep go through the, uh, the shepherd goes through the door. And then He calls Himself the Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd, and, and, and how His sheep know, hear His voice and He's known of them, and they know Him, and they follow Him, and He gives unto them eternal life. And He says this in John 10, verses 27 to 29. He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. So Jesus Christ is speaking about those who are His sheep. And we're not going to get into the debate tonight about when they became His sheep and the Calvinistic idea and whatnot. Um, We're just going to talk about the reality that His sheep are those who follow Him. His sheep are believers. His sheep are disciples. His sheep are those who hear His voice, know His voice, and follow Him. He says, "...they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand." My Father which gave them Me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. Now, if you were to look at this in our King James Bibles, you'll notice that the word man in both verse 28 and 29 is italicized. So if you look um, here, all of this is in italics. It's the nature of the website. But man here in verse 28 and man in verse 29 are actually in italics. Can anybody tell me in the King James Bible when you see words in italics, what that is telling you about. That's right. So the translators of the Bible added the words to the text. There is no Greek word in the original that, that supports that English word. Now that doesn't mean it shouldn't be there because it might it might be implied. The, the word might be implicit. You've seen how many times the, the Greek doesn't need a pronoun because the verb implies a pronoun. And oftentimes, the English will put the pronoun in so that we know what's going on. 
and I or you or me or your, uh, even though the, the, the Greek verb doesn't need it, the English one does. And so you'd, you'd put it in italics to say it, it's not there in the Greek, but it is there. It needs to be there in the English. Different things for understanding. So, so we, we see that. Um, and the word man here in both of these cases is actually in italics. Sophia, did you have a question? Okay, I just saw the hand and I didn't, didn't want to miss you um, before you forgot or whatnot. So the phrase, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand in verse 28. Does someone want to try to read an entire phrase? Would that just like be starting here and going to here? I'll wait like 15 seconds and if no hand comes up, then I'll read it. I'm not going to... I'm not going to ask anyone to do this. Actually, I won't even read it. I'll just skip it. But um, uh, so Audrey's hand first. You want to give it a shot? Okay. You got it. Very well done. Literally translated, anyone or anything shall not seize them out of my hand. It's in the masculine. Anyone is probably better. No man is, is right and good, but any, any man, any, anyone shall not seize them out of my hand. And then no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Someone want to read that one? It's a little bit longer. Sophia? Arpa. You, you're doing great. Finish it up. Finish it up. You can do it. Good. Very good. Literally, no one shall be able or shall seize out of the hand of my father. So Jesus tells us that his sheep are in his hand and he is in his father's hand and no one can pluck you out of his hand and he, then he says, my father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And so we've talked about this before. We've given this illustration that when, when you go to the store with a small child, you tell them to hold your hand, but it's not so much them holding your hand as much as it is you holding their hand, right? Because you can't really rely on the small child to, be, to, to just hold your hand because they get distracted and then they drift, wander. So you hold their hand so that when they try to let go, you're still hanging on. Jesus and the Father. If you, can, if you want to see it this way, we're placed into Christ. Christ is in God. And that's us. You, you can let go, but that's not going to matter because you're in their hands. So Christ's sheep are in His hand. The Bible doesn't tell us that we are holding on to Christ, but that Christ is holding on to us. Romans eight twenty nine and 30. We, we've talked about this one before uh, when we were talking about predestination and election. For whom he did foreknow, 
he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Okay, so in a very real way, the entire doctrine of predestination and election is meant to give the believer absolute security in his salvation. You say, why are we called the elect? Why are we predestinated? Well, here's the thing. If the moment you got saved, you became predestinated unto the glory of God, you became predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, you became one of the elect, predestination is an an unchangeable decree by God, right? God is, before it's happening, telling you it's going to happen. So you were never predestined if you don't get there. And if you are predestined by the very nature of being saved, then you have to get to the end of your predestination by being saved. Uh, You are saved, which means you're predestined. There's not a subset of Christianity that's predestined. It's not, okay, you get saved, and then after you're saved, once you've been in the club for a certain number of years, then you get your, your predestined pin. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's not you get your second blessing and then you're predestined. You are predestined by virtue of being saved. You're elect, you, you step into the elect the moment you're saved. And so if you are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, if you're predestined to be glorified and justified... How can you be unpredestined? That means you weren't predestined. Which means you weren't a Christian to begin with because if you're a Christian, then you're predestined. If you're predestined, then you're there already, effectively, positionally, right? So you can't be saved without ending up glorified. It's impossible. Theologically. Question about that? Romans 11.29. This is uh, a verse, a weaker argument. But Romans 11.29 says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now, this is in the context of Israel and God's continuing promises. The election to Israel. Remember, election is not about salvation. Election is about somebody. What's? Thank you, girls. Purpose, right? Election is about purpose. We are not elect unto salvation. We are elect unto a purpose. And so if we are elect unto a purpose, Israel was elect unto a purpose. And they're called God's elect. And Romans 11.29, as is speaking about the fact that all Israel shall be saved, Paul says, because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. When he gives something, he doesn't revoke it. We can apply that to our salvation. The principle indicates that when God gives a gift, when He ushers us into a calling, He keeps His word. If God told you that you are a believer, if He brought you into the elect membership of the church, if He predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ, you're in. Then the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God does not repent of His gifts. 
Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. So the Scriptures say that, that when, we, when we accepted Jesus Christ, when we believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that Holy Spirit is called the earnest, which is a down payment of your inheritance. Now we've talked about the fact already that our inheritance is a future deal. Our adoption is a future deal, right? Uh, we're going to talk about that more in verses um, 6 through 9. But the idea here is that the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the, the prepayment of the rest that is to come. And that's what a down payment is. You put down a little bit of money and that tells the people you're serious and that the rest is coming. That's why you put a down payment down. And so that if, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a legal transaction, so you put that down payment down. It's the same thing. And I, I had a, a, a friend once who hated the idea of thinking of the Holy Spirit as a down payment. He said it just doesn't seem to do justice to him. Oh, I agree in a manner of speaking, it doesn't. But when you realize that it's not that, that the Holy Spirit is, it's, it's, he's not money. He's not currency. It's just the same word. What it's saying about the Holy Spirit is that the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is but a taste. It, it assures us that we've got the rest and it's a taste of the rest. When the fruit of the Spirit is born out in our lives, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, when that bubbles out of our lives, when you're in those moments where you've been sharing the gospel with someone or you've been serving the Lord and you're just so excited and it's, it's like you, you're, I don't know if you've ever had this, every time I've led someone to Christ, you just, you just get so excited. Uh, there have been times where I've not been able to sleep at night. My wife can attest to that. Where it's hard to sleep because I'm so excited about what has happened. I, I, I could tell the Holy Spirit was using me. And it's just you're filled and you've been used and you've been uh, a tool in, in the best way possible of the Holy Spirit. To, to do something. Verses were coming to your mind that you hadn't thought of in forever. Things were connecting. Dots were connecting. I feel this way sometimes after my Monday night classes I teach and after Tuesday nights too and after Sunday sometimes too where you just you feel the filling of the Holy Spirit unto ministry. And that feeling, that exhibition of the Spirit of God, that Fruit is but a taste of what we have coming one day. Is but a taste of the joy. Is but a taste of the, the, the delight of all that is waiting for us in heaven. And that's the idea. It's not to minimize the Holy Spirit. It's simply to remind you that what He's doing in and through us is but a taste of all that is to come. But he also, the scriptures say, seals us. And this is the idea of the stamp that would be put, say, on an outside of an envelope, that wax seal that they would then stamp with their ring, say, back in the day. And so when the person received that letter, it had the wax seal, but it also had the stamp. And the seal with the stamp assured you that that letter had been secured until you saw it. See, because a wax seal wasn't enough, right? Because someone could easily just melt the wax and re, 
We stamp it. But only one person had that seal. And so when you were sealed, when that letter was sealed, not only did you know that it was secure, but you know who secured it. The earnest Holy Spirit as our earnest tells us who secures us. It's God because this is the fruit of God's Spirit coming out of us. But it also reminds us that we are sealed, that we are kept, that we are closed. Like a Ziploc bag, you're placed into it and you're zipped up. You can turn it upside down and you can shake it, but nothing's coming out because you're sealed. You're secure. Any questions on that one? It's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, we don't just believe this stuff. It's, it's there. God, God, God tells it to us. Jude 24. That's, of course, chapter 1, verse 24, because Jude only has one chapter. So Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And that's pretty self-explanatory that God is able to keep us from falling and able to keep us until the day he presents us faultless. And then finally, our passage in question, which is actually one of the most clear passages on eternal security in the Bible, that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice it doesn't say you are kept by faith, does it? Kept by God through faith. By means of your faith, on account of your faith, you are now being kept by God. Faith is not the thing that keeps us. God is the one that keeps us on account of the fact that we have placed our faith in Him. Questions about the textual proofs of eternal security? Isn't it great when the Bible's so clear? Don't even need questions. Inferential proofs of eternal security. These are things that aren't quite as straightforward, like, yeah, that's clearly eternal security. But they're still there, and principally, they're still good. John 17. John 17 is is a a fantastic, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. And it's because Jesus prayed for us in it. He prayed for you. Uh, Jesus, while on this earth, prayed for you. Wow, right? Look what he said. He said, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but thou, that thou shouldst keep them from evil. He's praying for his disciples here. Don't take them out of the world, God. They need to be in the world, but do keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus Christ says, I am set apart and they will be as well. Neither pray I, here it is, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us. That is the unbroken chain of belief going from person to person from Jesus Christ to us. Someone told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone who told us. And he prayed for us. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us. 
that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Christ in us, God in Christ, God in us. We're in God. We're in God, God's in us, that we may be one. Now what part of that is, and that those who sin may be booted out in due time. You don't see it. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus prayed that we'd be kept from evil, sanctified in the truth, and made perfect in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, another inferential proof. <laughs> Go ahead, Aletheia. Okay, so this idea here, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now we've talked about this. I use this all the time when I'm preaching. Born again by its nature, and I keep using this word precludes, it means it doesn't include the idea of losing one's salvation. If one is made a new creation at the moment of salvation, how can that be unmade? How can you be unmade? How can you be unborn again? A child can only be unborn by dying. You can't unborn him. You can only kill him. And he was still born. He's just now dead. You can't unborn. Nothing can be uncreated. We've not been able to to find the method of reversing time that can uncreate someone. And if you are made a new creation in Christ when you are placed into Christ, simply put, there's no way that that can be undone. Logically, theologically, practically, it doesn't make sense that a new creation can be uncreated that a, a, something that is born again can be unborn. So is Peter, remember how he has already spoken of these people as being begotten again unto a lively hope and kept by the power of God. These are placed together. We are begotten again. We are kept by the power of God. We've been born again. Now we're kept by the power of God. We are guarded So the scripture gives no indication in any context that the believer can lose their salvation. But there is a problem passage. And there's a few that people go to. Most of them are pretty simple. But there is one particular problem passage that really is tough. It's almost as if you just say, well, why why does that one have to be in our Bibles? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The writer of Hebrews, I believe Paul, said this, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. 
And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Very, very difficult passage for we who believe in eternal security to contend with. Enough that if we didn't have all of these verses like 1 Peter chapter 1 that tell us that we are kept by the power of God and that we are born again in all of these dynamics, this would certainly be enough for us to build a doctrine around that says we can lose our salvation. But it can't mean that. And we know it can't mean that because there are so many more clear passages that tell us that we can't lose our salvation. And when you deal with a a passage like this where it is difficult and ambiguous, you always interpret the ambiguous through the, the clear. You start with what is clear and then you rule out what cannot be because of what the Bible clearly says. And then you deal with what could be. This is not bad interpretation. This is not us saying, this is not us burying our heads in the sand because we're refusing to see this as a possible passage that talks about losing your salvation. This is us recognizing that the Bible is very clear on a point. But that doesn't make this any easier to deal with, does it? This is a tough, tough passage. As a matter of fact, nobody knows fully what this passage means. You could read whoever, everybody, anybody. You can go to the Greek scholars. You can go to the theologians. You can go to whoever you want. They'll all have a little bit of a different idea about this. It's just one of those passages where the Greek does not help us. It's hard to, this is hard to chew on. It's hard to fully understand. There, there, I had a running theory for a long time about this. And my running theory is that this is talking about those who have um, kind of the Matthew 13, the people that the, the seeds have been sown and some of them spring up and then you know the weeds choke them out or the sun scorches them. And so those who have received the seeds of the gospel and are beginning to understand the gospel, but then they get to a point where either the cares of the world or Satan or, or whatever it is chokes it out. And that's still a possibility. But I think that there may be something a little bit clearer because as you look at this, yeah, it says tasted of the word of God, uh, good word of God, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted of the heavenly gift. That could correspond to Jesus's parable about the, the sowing of the seeds. But I'm going to give you another idea here tonight about the, the, the concept of those who have accepted Christ. Let's, let's go off the premise here. Well, let me, let me give you the one and then I'll go off the other. I, I'll probably end up writing the other one down for the sake of the website. The one, as I've mentioned, let me just be a little slower and more clear with it, is Jesus Christ's parable on the sower and the seed. The Word of God is being sown. Jesus Christ says that. And as the Word of God is sown, some falls on, some falls by the wayside, some falls on rocky ground, some falls on thorny ground, some falls on good ground. And Jesus Christ equates each one of these with a different person. Those who hear the Word and it, it just doesn't even sink in. That's the, the, the stony ground. Then there are those that hear the word 
and it takes root, but the cares of this world quench it. There, and, and so the one is Satan. He says Satan comes and, and plucks it out like a bird. The other is the cares of the world quenching. Um, the, the, the other is the, the sun scorching. And then the final is those who actually take root and they grow and they bear fruit. And so we see in Jesus' parable that there are some who the Word of God begins to sink in, but they hit a point. They, they, they gladly receive it to begin with. But then as they understand what it's asking of them, they say, no, that's not for me. So that's the person that hears Jesus loves you and he died to save you from your sins and you can go to heaven. That's great. And then they read, if any man take not up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. And they say, oh, take up cross, deny self. Huh. I think I'll just stick to Jesus loves me. The cares of this world have just squeezed out the gospel. And he, he's not born again. He may have gladly accepted the message, but as it took root in his heart, it was gone. And so that could be the idea here. And quite legitimately could be the idea. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Um, the, they were once enlightened they tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers. But that's, that's the tough one. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, right? That's the tough one. Unless it's speaking of receiving the conviction, actually, accepting the conviction to a degree, and then losing it. But that's where I, I, I really struggle. Partakers of the Holy Ghost. So let's play off the assumption then that this is speaking of one who does get saved. So they have... They, they, they were at one time enlightened to the truth of God's Word. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They are partakers of the Holy Ghost, or they were made partakers at salvation. They have tasted of the good Word of God, powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again into repentance, is what he's saying here, seeing they crucify themselves with God afresh. Um, so, so a likely interpretation or a possible interpretation. Now, notice where Paul begins here. He begins with an exhortation to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ and go on into perfection. To not lay again the basics is basically the idea here. That these believers need to move beyond the basics of just the doctrine of Christ. And he says, primarily first, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. We'll call that salvation proper. That's what salvation is. It's when you reject dead works to get you to heaven and you place your faith in God to get you to heaven. That's belief. Repentance, not repentance of sin. Repentance from dead works. Faith towards God. The doctrine of baptisms, uh, he says. This is the declaration of faith. This is, he says this is a basic. Baptism is a basic. This is you declaring your faith. This is, this is you testifying to the world. This is, this is your public declaration. He's not saying this is needed for salvation. He says this is a basic of the doctrine of Christ. You repent from dead works, you put your faith in God, you get baptized. The doctrine of laying on of hands. Um, the only thing we see as far as this one in Scripture is um, we see the ordination for ministry and then we do see in the book of Acts Paul lay his hands on some people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. We would not interpret that to be something that has carried on. We would interpret that to be unique. Both Peter and Paul did it as a, a part of the transitional time in the book of Acts. 
Um, you could argue here that this has something to do with salvation, not salvation proper, but the, the whole idea of the basics of, of Christ. As a whole, though, the church doesn't really, the only thing we know of for laying on of hands is ordination toward ministry. Um, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, that would be our future inheritance, understanding that. The doctrine of eternal um, judgment, future damnation. And so these are the basics. It's not that you have to understand all these things to be saved, but these are all basics of Christ. Having the basics in place, he says we need to not debate them any longer. You need to get past the basics. You need to move on to perfection, completion in action and testimony. Well, why? And this is the idea I think that the text might be saying. To debate the basics of the Christian faith. You're debating whether or not Christ rose from the dead, right? Like 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're, you're not saved, but you, are, you have gone far afield. Like the Galatian believers as well, right? They, they are now debating whether or not you need the law as a part of salvation. They have, they, they have gone far afield. They are lost. Not, not salvation lost. They're just completely doctrinally lost. They're confused. They're, they're, they're walking in, in a haze. So that could be this idea that uh, they which um, are they're debating the basics of the Christian faith clearly enumerated in the, in the word of God is a, a regression, a falling away. All right. So you're walking with Christ. You, you get caught up in legalism or you get caught up in one of these false doctrines and you fall away. You regress in Christian maturity. You fall back to the principles of Christian infancy. And this invariably leads to sinfulness and ineffectiveness for Christ. Invariably. And again, I, I tell you, consider the Galatian believers. Consider the Corinthian believers. So being in a state of infancy, living like unbelievers, living like pagans, they are indeed saved, but it is impossible for them, and this is what he says, it's impossible for you to renew what you once had. That doesn't mean you can't get back to a right relationship with God, but you're not ever going to be able to get re-saved. What did he just say about repentance? The only, in, in this context, repentance was from dead works and faith toward God. The idea of repenting from dead works and faith towards God is not going to happen over again. It's impossible for those who had once tasted the heavenly gift, if they regress in Christian maturity, to go through salvation again. Which means you're living in a place of carnality, you're quenching the Spirit of God, you have no excuse, and you have no second born-again experience to call you out of the error. And the reason why they can't be born again again is because in doing so, what you would be implying is that you, you lost your salvation. You would have to re be... And, and this, is, this is how Paul describes it. Those people that say they've gotten born again twice, they're effectively crucifying Christ again. They're effectively saying that God... They're, they are declaring God's blood was not sufficient for them the first time. And so they're crucifying God afresh by trying to renew unto them the repentance that they've already said they had once. They're implying that Christ's blood was not effective the first time, thus crucifying God again. This is why we have a problem with the Catholic doctrine or the Catholic sacrament, the way they believe in communion, and we have a problem with the crucifix. They believe in the communion that it's turning into the blood and the body of Jesus, right? 
Literally, every time they partake, they're effectively crucifying Jesus. He died once for all. And remembering Him on the cross is not how we remember Him. That's why we don't like crucifixes. Because we don't remember our Savior on the cross. We remember that our Savior is alive. We don't need to crucify Him again and again and again and again for our sins, which is kind of what penance is all about. He's been crucified. He was buried. He's risen. Now He lives ever to intercede. And since there is no second salvation, we need to move on into perfection. We need to be continually progressing because there's no second jump start. You know that jump start that happens kind of when you get saved? Young people wouldn't perhaps understand this as much because you're living in it. But, but if, if you were saved in an older age or if you've seen people saved in an older age, that jump start where all of a sudden you're like zealous and things start falling away and you're there and you're... If you regress in your Christian life, there's no second jump start for you. You have to climb your way out of the hole if you want to get out of that hole. If you get saved and you're on fire for the Lord and, and, and the Lord blesses you and, and, and the, the, you know, the, the wicked things that you looked at and the wicked things that you did fall away and then you begin to fall back into them or the false doctrines of the faith and you begin to regress in your Christian maturity and in your Christian life, the only way back is to slowly chip your way back. And that's why regression is so dangerous for the Christian. So dangerous. Because as a Christian, the habits that you form, there's, no gonna, there's not going to be a Holy Spirit jump start to kill those habits. You've got to work your way out with, this, with the help of the Spirit after repenting and getting right with God. But the longer you let sin reign in your mortal body, the harder it is to get it out as a believer. Sophia? That would be a, a way that you could put it, that you are being scarred in your soul. That's a way to put it. And so, whereas when Christ saved you, you were made anew in Christ, old things passed away, all things are become new, you, you start with what you could say, no matter what your past was, you're forgiven, you've got a clean heart. As you regress as a Christian, yeah, you get scarred. And those scars will take time to heal. You can, be, you can be brought back to fellowship with the Lord immediately through confession, but you have to work your way out of sin, sin habits, sinful ideas. I believe that's what this is talking about here. It's impossible for you to renew yourself unto repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It's impossible for you to be reborn again is the idea. And because it's impossible for you to be reborn again, move on. Progress. Right? That's what he said. That's what he said in verse 1. Leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ and go on into perfection. Don't stay here in your infancy. Don't stay in spiritual maturity. Progress. Move past these sins. Don't lay again these foundations. Don't debate doctrine that's settled. Move past that. Because you can't crucify Christ again for your sins. 
and you, you don't have a reborn again experience after being born again, which means move on, keep progressing so that you don't find yourself dug into this terrible pit of sin and become ineffective for Christ. Tough. I, I can't tell you that that's, the right trans, that that's the right interpretation. But it makes sense. From what the, the verses say, from Paul or whoever it was, leading with the idea of moving unto perfection, and then specifically talking about repentance as being from dead works, the repentance that we would see there would be a, not that you can't repent of your sin, repentance from dead works. You can't do that twice. We need to stay contextual when we interpret, right? And contextually, repentance was defined for us as repentance from dead works. So don't leave the definition that has just been set down for you when you try to interpret the next repent. Use the one that's there. That's, that's good interpretive principles. So repentance from dead works, it's impossible to renew the repentance from dead works and faith toward God to renew yourself. It's impossible to be born again again. And if we see it this way, in fact, this becomes not a problem passage, but it confirms, does it not? If we believe Paul to say that you can't be born again a second time, then this confirms that if you're born again, you're born again. Or if you, either that or if you lose it, you're done. and You can't be reborn again. But once again, plenty of verses to, to invalidate that. So, what other questions? Confusing enough? No questions. Everyone feels at least okay about that. That's the most problematic passage that you'll run into on this topic. And um, when we hit these passages, again, it's not in implicitly or directly even that you would know how to articulate this argument. If you, can, if, you, if you take the time to learn this, that's a very good thing. But what I want, particularly of the children here, is as you, and, and the adults, as you go out into the world, it's the same thing with the King James issue and with uh, all of the things that I teach here. I don't necessarily, I teach them so that you'll learn. I don't necessarily expect that you'll remember them all. But what I want you to know or have confidence in is this. That when you go out there and you hear this guy who's a Christian or you go to that, that place and, and there are people there and they're talking about the Bible and they're mocking eternal security or they use this verse to try to disprove eternal security, you've heard it before. You don't need to necessarily know the argument, although it would be good for you if you could. But what you can know is, wait a minute, Pastor Wickler has explained that to me. And at the time, I was satisfied with that explanation. And I'm going to go back now. It, it, that way, it doesn't completely derail you or your faith. And it's the same thing. When people say, well, the King James is an inferior translation. You may not have all of the, the arguments to know why, but you can at least know, well, Pastor Wickler has shown me some pretty compelling proofs that, that though it's not perfect, it's, I don't need to feel bad about using it. Those sorts of things. And so that's why I do these things. It's not necessarily so that you have to know it all or so that you would, although it would be great if you did, but so that when you hear people argue the opposite, there's at least a little tick in your mind that says, wait a minute, 
I've heard the other, the other side of this. There is another side to this. And uh, that way you can weigh the options and balance instead of just being drawn away. Okay. Questions, comments, concerns? Smart remarks. I know. I know. All right. Yes. Eternal security took a while. Robin. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and it is in many ways. Um, it's it's an arrogant or a self-focused idea that says somehow I can pull myself out of out of God's hand, um, and as we've seen, you know, absolutely un- unbiblical. But is something that you'll, you will come across many Christians in your life that wrestle with this. And so it would be a benefit to you to learn this. Why you believe in internal security. You don't have to know all of this stuff. But do know, take First Peter with you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. And open that, op- open that up to people and say, what does it mean that you are kept by the power of God through faith? What does it mean, John 10? That, that you are in Christ and Christ is in God and that no man can pluck you out of Christ's hand or God's hand. It just takes a little bit. And the truth of God's Word commends itself to their spirits. So do, I would encourage you to know those. To have a, a working familiarity so that you can help people with this issue and um, disciple them because that's what we're called here to do. Good. Any, any other thoughts? Okay. We will be finished there then.